Welcome to the Kira Freeland podcast. My guest this week is actress Mary McAvoy. She speaks to me about fame, her struggles and her faith. Mary, how would you best describe yourself? A human being in art school trying to learn about being a spirit. Now, doesn't that sound really odd? But that's that's it. It's that's that everything. I filter all my my experiences through that. Like, how does it inform spirit? How does it inform the soul? How does it help me evolve spiritually? Or what have I got to do to evolve spiritually? Okay, tell me a little bit more about that. Obviously, I know you were practicing Buddhism for many years. Is that mm. part of it? Well, it is. I mean, more I think the Buddhism was because of that, rather than it. This is because of Buddhism, if you know what I mean. Um, I've always been a seeker, always been a spiritual tourist, I suppose, till I settled on Buddhism. And it informs everything because as far as I'm concerned, just for myself, I'm not speaking for anybody else, but nothing makes sense without it and everything makes sense with it, even the bad stuff. And and, and I find myself being a lot more sane um, when I filter everything through a spiritual prism as opposed to looking at it from my ego or looking at it from, yeah, my ego, because that's that's the opposite to me is is, is what it is, mm-hmm. do you know? And the spiritual journey that you were on, where did it begin or why did it begin? Well, <laughs> it's the funniest thing. I mean, I remember when I was a kid <laughs> watching the song of Bernadette, which was about St. Bernadette and Lourdes, and kneeling down with the rosary on my own in front of a, st- a statue of the Blessed Virgin, saying the rosary over and over and over and over again to see her because in in the in the film you see the apparition and to my ch- child's eyes it was this beautiful creature, you know, and I wanted that, I wanted that transcendence. And then kind of, I was, I, it, you know, it, it was always there. I mean, when I was living in Dublin back in the 70s, I would go to this place called um, Green Acres, it was called. It was the very first health shop in Dublin. And they had all this at the back. They had a, a little library of a, all sorts of spiritual books. And I was constantly in there with my nose stuck in one. And and then I got into yoga. And then, I mean, I still do yoga because that kind of blends in with everything that I do. And yeah, it just, it just, it was, it's, it, I think it's why I'm finding it so hard to explain is that it's always been there. It wasn't a reaction to something that happened. It's always been there. I mean, there've been times when I was further away from it than when I was, than I, than I'm close to it, but always came back, always came back to it because eventually life just tells you unless you find something that navigates the, seemingly random and irrational things that happen, you, you, you're going to, you're going to end up without hope. I think, do you know, either that or you're, you're just distracted by buying things and going places and trying to do this and constantly getting out of your, what is your day to day life? And in Buddhism, they say Buddhism is daily life. That's what it is. There's no journey away. It more is a journey into rather than a journey away. And that makes complete sense to me. You know, and I and I'm not sitting on a fluffy cloud thinking everything's wonderful, and it's not that I don't get annoyed or frightened or depressed, which I do very often. But it's like the mood music to it all is that is 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 this spiritual curiosity, I suppose. 
Mary, you spoke there about um, sometimes finding yourself without hope. Has that happened to you a lot throughout your life? It has very frequently, but I'm one of the lucky ones when I get into a depressive period. I'm, I have a kind of a real blood and guts desire to survive. And I, I always, I've never, you know, considered taking my own life. I've often had a fleeting thing of, oh God, you know, this, you know, <laughs> I can really understand why people want everything to end, but I've never wanted to myself because I'm too curious. I'm too, I'm too, too interested in what's going on. And I must say that since I pulled back on my acting career and I, you know, let me take this <laughs> very unspiritual, uh, let me, this opportunity to say I'm not retired. It's gone to that. People seem to think I'm retired. I'm not retired. I've just decided I don't want to do anything unless it gives me pleasure and it gives other people pleasure. I just don't want to be doing it for the money as such. So, but since I stepped back, I went through a period just before COVID of insane busyness. I mean, where I was on tour constantly, like, and never stopped. I was never, and like, you know, getting into the car and driving to flipping Tralee and driving home from Tralee and all of that. And I was working with great people like John Kenny and Michael Scott and our stage manager, Eva Walsh, and that was all great. But eventually, I, you know, I, it, it, it really took COVID for me to realize the insanity of busyness. And in lots of ways, I was just being busy so I could be with these people. Do you know what I mean? And I went, do you know something? I can go out for lunch with them any day, you know, if I want to. I don't have to kill myself to do it. And that's not to say that on stage I didn't enjoy myself. I did very much. And I, I, I there was times when I really enjoyed myself and relished it. And, but, once it stopped and it's only really and I it was like you know the way when you watch a plate spinning just you hit something and it spins and then it goes and then it stops but it goes at about three different speeds before it stops and that was me I I loved the beginning of COVID you know where it was just it was like a long garden party basically because I'm blessed to live in a really nice place part of the country and have nice neighbours and you could chat across the garden wall I wasn't isolated or anything like that um all of that but uh then then I decided then that you know I'm not going back to that level of activity again and it took me a while to kind of take all the different steps of because there's a morning too you you know if you if you've done something all your life and you're kind of going you know I don't think I can do this anymore you have to kind of mourn it it's 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 sad and you you know, but there's no other way. You can't do it and not be busy and out of your brains of tiredness. Um, and, and in this kind of really adrenal fight or flight mode almost. Um, and it's only really in this year that I'm seeing my, 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 my mental health bob up. Now, that's not to say I was down all the time. Not that awful anxiety all the time which was there constantly. It was just horrendous. That stopped. Now, it's to, to a degree it has stopped. I mean, I am an anxious person, so it's not like, you know, I'm suddenly, you know, terribly calm and nothing ruffles me. I think anxiety is a base level thing I go to. But it was it was literally insane, the degree I felt of it, you know. And 
you know, and then you're with people who are passionate about what they do and they can't understand why you don't want to do it. Do you know, so it's difficult. It's difficult, but it's all grand now, like in, in, in that sense. And there's bits and pieces coming in that I like. There aren't, um, you know, uh, uh, too stressful that are enjoyable that, that, uh, I like to do. And then the other thing, of course, is, is that thing is if I'm not busy, who am I? And there's the spiritual thing. If I'm not, if I'm not my job, then who am I? You've spoken a lot about your mental health before, and it's great to hear that, as you said, it does bob up, that you found that as I suppose you have taken a step back from career and everything that you might have been handling before COVID, that it seems that, would it be fair to say you're having an easier time of it now in comparison to previous times? And when you do have those tough days, the dark days, what do you do to make yourself feel better? I would eat. Before, and when I say before, I'll tell you why I say before. I, I, I would eat. I developed an eating disorder, sort of binge diet. And I had all the, the, the eating things before as a young girl. Uh, you know, I went down to, I don't know, some ridiculous weight and nothing would convince me I was thin. And then I went ballooned up and then I was, you know, it was, I had the whole thing, but not thank you again to any, you know, extreme that was life threatening, you know. But the weight probably went up and up and up and up and up. And that was life threatening. I was getting to a stage where it was life threatening because I, you know, yeah, anyway. But and and then what I, I did was because I was in such, again, torment, because I remember saying to a friend of mine, you know, if I drank the way I ate, you'd be worried about me, you know, and I, I needed to hear myself say that. And so I, I joined a 12 step program. I'm not going to say any more about that because a stands for anonymous, so I'm not going to, you know, go, but my experience of the 12 steps and of people who work them and of people of the meetings I go to through Zoom, I don't go into any face to face meetings. I have learned a huge degree of self-acceptance because I was accepted because it's a funny thing, I suppose, coming from a low and, you know, a level of sensitivity and anxiety anyway to be famous in this country or any country and to be famous before the the Me Too movement started. I didn't have any Me Too experiences myself, I have to say, at least not in my work. But it 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 it, it started this self-examination within the press and within the showbiz press of being kinder, just this idea of being kinder. But back then, you know, people were write awful things like you just and to somebody else, I'm like, oh, sure, look, that goes to the job. Who cares? But I was there in my little only only child's head trying to work about that. And you felt nothing I do is good enough. You know, um, I'll never be the good person or the, the, the good actress or the, you know. And and so I, I turned it in on myself. So I didn't accept myself. And the minute I started to work the 12 steps and work with other people and meet people from all over the world, who just went there you are and you're fine with us you're grand we have we have no wish issue or worry about you or or we don't think you have to be this way or that way obviously you you've had a fantastic career um the, and the majority of people in Ireland will know you from playing Betty Byrne and Glen Row. did you did you find it difficult to deal with the fame that it brought it's it's the same thing um when 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 i 
became famous, which, you know, I also think you can't be famous in Ireland. It's just a big parish. Just, you know, uh, but, uh, but we just used the word for that, for that. It was, it was great for the first, say, six months. And then once Glenrose started to get really popular, then you realized what you were giving up, you know, and there was, there wasn't that, commer- that, celebrity culture like there wasn't that sort of thing but it was beginning it was beginning and there was I know a friend of mine who's a very well-known actor and I I won't say who he is but he used to go to the 40 foot you know to the gentleman's bathing place and he would you know divest himself of all his clothes and dive in and long lens camera got him you know and he said to me and I, I always remember he said they took the one bit of peace away from me. He said, I come here, I just get into the water and I don't think, and I don't think, and they took that away from me, you know. And that struck me very, that, that, so you do end up being a little bit like a hunted animal. I mean, not now, nobody knows, nobody knows who I am anymore. Um, but like in those days, people did know you and, and people weren't used to that. You know, you you couldn't go to a pub now. I haven't I haven't been in a pub for a night out. I'd say in thirty years, um, because you'd have will you settle a bet with us? You know this kind of thing. And then other people, if you if you don't kind of if you didn't fawn on the people and talk to them and you know I mean obviously you talk to them, but like if you didn't sort of join the company or whatever it was, then the abuse would start. So I just didn't go out. You know. And again, as I say, I came from a very rural area of Ireland into an Ireland where there was no celebrity culture. So there was nobody to tell me anything about it. Like there was, I suppose in Dublin, you know, there was the Talca Row and there was all that, but it wasn't the the thing it is now. And I haven't a clue how to deal with it. And, you know, my agent at the time kind of went, well, you know, quite rightly, she's, she's not there to hold my hand like she, you know. Um, it was, it was very hard. It was, I remember sometimes, you know, going, who can help me here? And I realized that actually nobody can help me because, well, John, um, Joe Lynch was very good to me at times. And, um, and you know, who was really good to me? It was Gay Byrne. Not that I was, didn't live in his pocket or anything, but anytime I met him, he was the first person to discuss, to notice that I wasn't myself. And he was the first person who ever said, are you all right? You know? And he was always very kind to me, which I'll never forget. But I didn't have anybody to go to, really. I really didn't. Um, but, if, you know, in the great scheme of things, it was a small problem. I just wasn't very good at dealing it. I'm not minimizing it now, but I just didn't have the wherewithal. I couldn't go home to my mum and dad. They didn't understand. My neighbours didn't understand. I didn't understand it myself, you know, so... Um, yeah, it took, it, it took a long time. I'm much better at it now, but it did take, even up into the last 10 years, much better now at being, at feeling safe within myself, you know, feeling safe, feeling I'm who I am. And, you know, nobody's going to impose an impersonality on me based on who they think I am rather than who I actually am. You mentioned um, during your career so far that you've had no Me Too experience, but did you experience unacceptable behaviour or behaviour that impeded your career that might have taken a different path, do you think, like bullying? Well, bullying is a very difficult thing to prove, you know. Um, now, if I go back through the period periods of my early acting career, wasn't in Glenrow, by the way, before anyone starts it. Glenrow was a happy place. None of that happened there. 
But anyway, um, that you would, again, it was that thing of being on your own in a situation and you kind of go, this isn't right, but maybe I deserve it because I'm not good enough. And I went into a city and, and I'm not tough enough and I should be tougher and I should be able to take this. And really, it's only to make me better. And it wasn't. It was it was it was straightforward bullying. And I did make up my mind early in my career that I wouldn't tangle too much with the artistic side of theatre and I would stick to commercial a t- commercial career simply because the people were nicer. And that's the, the, the holy all of it. Nowadays, there isn't so much of a divide between the two anymore because people recognize box office as box office. But back then, you know, there was a big divide between theater and television. And you were very much looked down on if you were in television. Now it's different. But then you were. Um... And uh, I mean, there's a joke told about an actor that's walking down, a, uh, a soap actor who's walking down. I've been Bergen told me this years and years ago. Um, he's walking down a beach and he finds a genie's lamp. And he's a soap actor, he's in a soap. And the, the, the genie, he rubs the lamp and the genie comes out and he says, I'll, gar- I'll grant you anything. He said, Oh, he said, yes, the actor, he takes out a map of the Middle East and he says, here, look, these people are, you know, they're not happy with each other. Can you make that end? And the genie says, you know, I can't, I'm, I'm not a god, I can't do that. He says, is there anything else to do with you that I can, I can, I, I can have? And she said, he says, would you get me a job in the gate theatre? <laughs> and the genie scratches his head and goes, give us a look at that map again. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was so funny. It's different now. It's very different now. But um, how did the bullying affect you? Then did, did it stop you? Obviously, taking a different career path. I thought I didn't go in to the situations where I was bullied, thinking I was the best actress that ever walked the the earth. But I did go in with the sense of excitement and um, hope for my career. I left it very cowed and just thinking I'll never be good enough. And that really has stayed with me to this day that I'll never be good enough. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, ever going to be a grand dam, you know, I'm, I'm, um, you know, it's okay. It's, it's, and then it's a lifelong journey to get your way back again. Because I I think even now I'm kind of glad in a way, it's just, even when bad things happen, I'm kind of glad I'm not the person who's kind of very career orientated or very career, you know, driven. And, you know, I like my life the way it is. It's a very organic life now. What happens, happens. And I roll with it, you know. Do you find that ageism is an issue in the industry that you've worked in? I do. I mean, see, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that I'm complaining a lot but because I'm, I'm actually quite a happy person. But I think ageism is a thing in the world. I don't think it's particularly of the industry. I, I, I was I was in Dublin a couple of weeks ago and I was having a cup of coffee outside and I overheard a conversation and I don't know whether they were all medical students or nurses, but one was a junior doctor and proceeded to talk about an old man who came in with the temerity, an old man with the temerity to come in on Christmas Day to the hospital, you know, and but the way she, the way she used old, it was 
it had every connotation of everything that you wouldn't want. Like old, it was really kind of abusive. And I really, I, I argued with myself and I said, am I going to get up to her now and am I going to say something? And I said, no, just leave well enough alone. She'll learn herself. Um, but I do notice there's a careless use of language around the word old. But, you know, there, there is a, there, there is, you know, I said this, there's a, a big gap between leading actress in whatever, soap or whatever, and then doing ads for Tenna Lady, which is what you usually end up doing or something like that. Do you know, it's like that. But I do think particularly in Ireland, it just is kind of a, some of the parts that I've been asked to read for are, were, I don't know anyone like that. I really genuinely don't know any person over 50 who is like that, you know, making cakes and constantly worrying about her children. And there are a few, but not, you know, not this prevalence. Um, and there's nothing wrong with making cakes and worry, worrying about your children either. But it was like this, this ta- a very small world and a world that in and of itself is inconsequential. And I, I just thought, no, that's not what age is, you know. Do you find that in society, um, you know, look, we see reports every year about elder abuse. There was one out recently. Um, and I, I suppose like respect for people as well. Do you feel that some of the older generation um, can be cast aside um, and that society feels that they have no use and think differently of them? Would that, would, would you feel strongly about that? I do feel very strongly about it because, I mean, I see it myself. I've seen it. Um, th- that kind of the bed blocker mentality you know, that thing of, you know, he's, you know, let's get rid of them because they're old and we might as well, you know, I'm not saying that, that, but there is, it's, it's, it's very, very hard to, it's so insidious. It's very hard to spot it when it happens, do you know? And like, say for instance, I have a bad knee, right? Or had a bad knee and, you know, I go to the no, go and get it looked at and I get an MRI da, 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 da. and all it's wear and tear and it's arthritis and I'm sure that's the way it is and you know and I and you know and I said well what what can I do and he said well maybe go to a physiotherapist but you are looking at a knee replacement and I'm kind of going so I went instead of I did go to a physiotherapist and I got stronger and then I went and I started lifting heavy weights in a gym and my knee doesn't bother me anymore but nobody tells you that everybody treats old do you know what I mean mm. They don't treat a bad knee in a person that may want to walk normally for another 15 or 20 years without operation. Now, I'm not saying you can turn back the clock. You can't, but you can slow it and you don't have to take drastic measures if you look after your health. And if there was one thing I would say about to anybody who's aging, do it while you can. Get yourself fit. Get yourself as well as you can be. And really, really don't um, um, underestimate the power of activity, like real activity. If you can only get up off a chair, well, then get up off a chair more times than you normally would. Then you might be able to walk to the kitchen or whatever and do it like that. Because if you have any mobility, look after it because, you know, you're going to have to in the future, you know. And I, 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 there's a lady I follow on, on uh, Instagram Joan McDonald and she's she's 77 now and she started working out when she was 70 and she's amazing 
she's just amazing. She, her daughter is a health professional, so I suppose it helped her, but she was on, she was diabetic. She was uh, high blood pressure. She had every known thing. She was on tons of tablets. She doesn't take anything now. And she has the, uh, like a serious body on her now and strong, you know? So, I mean, I think physicality and the human body, older people tend to go, oh, sure, it's all falling, you know? Well, it is. I mean, say we're in sniper's alley do you know what I mean but that's not to mean that you're powerless you can do things you know you can you can do things for your body and for yourself that keep you in the game you've claimed to be a Pilates instructor how did you find how did you find that process was there good and bad to it well it was a fantastic course I did I did it in the NTC National Training um, College but um, the, everything was brilliant. My co-course uh, people were gorgeous. My two tutors, three tutors were just beyond the beyonds in excellence, you know. But I gave myself a very hard time myself. And again, it's the ageism thing that I was ageist against myself, which is only when I realized it too. Well, what chance have you changed in ageism when you're at it? And it was like, I'm the oldest person. And I was a good bit older. I was the oldest by 20 years to the next oldest person, you know, everybody else was young and stunning and gorgeous. And that, that breed of perfect body that legs that go on forever and little flat tummies and, ah, oh, Jesus. And there was I, you know, and I felt like a little overweight corgi beside them, do you know? <laughs> but that's the body thing coming from the eating and come the, you know, and uh, I wasn't good enough and I wasn't good enough and I wasn't good. It was hell on wheels for me. It really was hell on wheels. And and everybody was good to me. I didn't, nobody kind of knew really what I was going through. I kept it very under, under no, wraps. You passed anyway. Congratulations on passing. Yeah. I'm only starting to teach now. Um, because again, it's like, I'm not good enough. I'll never be good enough and all of that. But still the only way you ever find out is by doing it. Did you know, no, I was just curious. Um, well, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast that you, you were curious, a curious person yourself. Um, who has influenced decisions that you've made in your life? I would say my spiritual beliefs have influenced most of my decisions. The decision to leave Glenroe was completely off the cuff. It's just going, okay, I'm doing that. And I went, I did it. And any big, any big decision I make tends to be like that. Um, like to, to do Pilates, okay, I'll do that. And then, of course, didn't realize what I had to do after, but it didn't matter. It, it worked out well. Um, so no, nobody has really influenced me because I realized how immature my ideas of wanting to be like actors, actresses that were my, that would, I would have admired and looking up to them because I actually realized that I'll tell you, I was, there's a film called The Barefoot Contessa and uh, it's Ava Gardner and um, Humphrey Bogart. Ava Gardner plays this film star, and the costumes, the 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 opulence of the costumes and the opulence of her Hollywood life. When I saw that as a kid, I had this thing right. And there was a scene in, in a casino in Monaco with all the as a kid. Now this is when I saw it as a kid. Oh, they had all these beautiful fifties dresses, and everybody was dripping in jewels, and everybody was sophisticated and drinking champagne, and you know at the roulette tables and da da da. da. And I was oh, that's a beautiful life. I want that life. I want pretty dresses, and I want the grandeur and the ease of money, you know, and all of that. Mm. And it was only oh, I don't know, when I was in my late fifties, I watched it again with a, a different eye. And that scene came and I realized that not one person 
in that scene was happy in, in as characters. There was no happiness. I, I, the happiness I had seen their beautiful dresses and the flats of money, they must be happy. But they weren't. Yeah. They were cynical and destructive and unhappy people. So that was a big learn for me. That's this is all a big, uh, you know, a, a whole big sort of universal con job about what what makes you happy, you know. Yeah. And lastly, before I let you go, Mary, a piece of advice that you would give to my next guest. You don't know who it is, either do I. But if there's one message that you carry around that you feel helps you through the day, what would it be? Keep your own side of the street clean. I love that. If the other side is un- is is untidy, that's up to them. Thanks to my guest, Mary McAvoy. Join me back here next week for another episode of the Cure Feeling Podcast. 